you know, this is not how I had planned my life. This is not where I saw myself going, and yet this is where I am. Like here you had all this opportunity, and now you have been reduced to a, st a statistic. You are the very thing that you see on the news that people talk about. From Fiori Communications, it's How I Got Here, a show of inspiring stories from Tallahassee area leaders, business owners, and neighbors, all the challenges, opportunities, inspirations, the twists and turns of life that led them to where they are today. Everyone has a story worth telling, and I am really grateful that we get to bring a few of them to you. I truly have been changed by my conversations with these amazing people, and I'm confident you will be too. I'm Dave Fiore, and in this episode, I speak with Jamie Coleman, a tax attorney and partner in the firm Williams & Coleman, whose path to the law includes a few run-ins with it and a long, arduous process of proving she had the character to serve the clients she now receives accolades for representing. In her life, Jamie has experienced the gamut of love, support, disappointment, and tragic loss, with unexpected blessings sprinkled throughout. If you ever thought your life was too far off track to recover from, Jamie's story will inspire you to keep grinding and depend on a strength greater than your own to reach your goals. We started with a question about how she sees herself today. I'm a mother of three. I'm a daughter, one of seven. I love God. Um, I'm a Christian. And I'm an attorney. That would probably be the last thing I say. I'm so much more than a lawyer. And I think that's what people initially think about me when they see me. But um, I take a great deal of pride and honor in being a mother and a Christian. My mom named me after my dad. James is his name. And my mother was studying French um, when she was in college. And she loved the name. Um, she, she loved not the name, but the word, Shatem, which means I love you. And so when they found out I was a girl, <laughs> they they chose Jamie, named after my dad, but also because Jamie is I love in French. I try to take that literally and figuratively. I try to be love in everything I do. I try to mimic those characteristics in 1 Corinthians 13th chapter and in those roles that I take on as mother, as daughter, as sister, um, as friend, as attorney, I try to, I try to be love. Yeah. That's great. Cool. All right. So, um, like you said, you grew up in a military family army and, um, you moved around a lot. So yes. where were you born? So I was born in Germany. Um, I was born in Stuttgart. Oh. And um, my dad was stationed there for about 10 years. So we moved at about nine and a half, 10 years old, I believe I was. And we moved to Georgia. We moved to Oklahoma. I lived in Mississippi. Um, and he retired here in Tallahassee. He got a job working in the ROTC building at um, Florida A&M University. And so um, that's how we settled in Tallahassee. So what was it like growing up in Germany? It for those amazing. early years. Right. It was amazing. I just actually met someone um, at Office Depot, and I picked up on his accent and asked him, where are 
are you from? And we got into a long conversation about how our childhood field trips are so different from uh, Floridians' childhood field trips, right? So my kids go to SeaWorld and Disney World. I was going to castles. Um, <laughs> and so it was it was amazing. Um, German was my first language. Um, Do you still so speak it at all? Nine. <laughs> nine? <laughs> <laughs> Not a bit. But um, um, it's funny how that works because when you start going to American schools, at least back in that time, they would, you know – classify you as having a learning disability if you didn't speak English well enough. And they would put you in classes um, where they just really wanted you to learn English and not kind of like nurture the, the language that you do um, know already. Back back then, I think we've kind of evolved in education. But um, Did your mom and dad speak German? No, I had a nanny. And so um, she kept me and my sister. I had a younger sister who's about a year and a half younger than me. Um, so she, the nanny kept us all day long for the first three, four years of our lives. And that's how we picked up German. Um, so it, they had to learn German as a result of that. Because right. They had to communicate, to with, communicate us, with her. Right. <laughs> right. And us too. So yeah. Um, but it was a wonderful experience. I'm incredibly blessed, enriched, enriched because of that experience. Um, just growing up in a totally different country, experiencing different foods, a different culture, um, going to summer camps in Germany, uh, where I'm the only one that, you know, kind of looks different and and talks a little different, but I still felt like I belong there. And it was it was just a and then um, growing up with other army brats too was also a lot of fun too. I got to kind of recreate myself every year, so to speak, because <laughs> I was a new wave of friends coming right. in. So um, it was an it was a very enriched experience. So I'm really fortunate that I had that chance to grow up there for a little bit. Yeah. So what was family life like? Um, the dynamics of your family. I know you said you had a nanny who who cared for you some, right. but with your siblings and your mom and dad and what, you know, being in the military and being in another country, which to you wasn't another country, I guess. It's right. the only thing you really knew. Right. Um, what was what was that like? Well, I am number four of seven children. So um, it was, I, I didn't know enough to know that we didn't have a lot. I thought we had everything. Christmases were always abundant. Um and I was always taken care of, always provided for. Um, so our, my family dynamics, I felt like, you know, I just had the perfect childhood. It's kind of how I feel. Um, you know, I had older siblings watching out for me. Both my parents worked. My mom worked at the commissary. Um, that's like the local grocery store on post. And my dad um I'm not even sure what my dad did, but he was always the first to leave in the morning. <laughs> so he had to be out of the house, I feel like, at like four in the morning to do PT and gone. But um, for most of the day, and and then he would be off um, for some extended period of time training. But um, I just, I think that my childhood and growing up uh, with my family, such a large family, was just, you know, I, I never felt isolated, never felt alone. My oldest sister is probably um, 15 years older than me. And then it starts, you know, then 
the next to oldest is a year younger than her. And then I have a 10-year gap between my third oldest, and then there's myself, and then there was my sister, Ashira, who passed. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I have uh, two brothers who are twins. So, you know, for a long time, my dad was in a house full of women. And then the last- Capped it off with twins. (laughs) Capped it off with twins. That's a strong end in in getting boys in the house. Good job, daddy. Good job. I imagine, you know, military families move around a lot, but that's a big family to every time kind of resettle and get everybody situated. I imagine that was kind of some interesting dynamics involved with that. It was. Um, you know, I remember when we did finally move from Germany and we were all in the airport traveling back to the United States and um it kind of is that scene from Home Alone when they're all running through the airport. Right. <laughs> and so that was us, you know, yeah. all, you know, trying to make sure we had everybody. And so, of course, nobody got left behind. But that's good. Um, it was always an adventure. And I that's what I remember. That's why I think my childhood was so great for me back then is that um, it was always an adventure with us because we were so large. Um, Germany was uh, a little different. Um from how I grew up in the United States. We only had one channel in Germany, one TV show to watch that was American. There were other shows, but we only had one channel. And I think the TV would come on at like six or seven o'clock in the evening. And it would be the Cosby show is the show that we would watch as a family. And so um, that show left like indelible mark on me, obviously. you know, I grew up watching that, so yeah. I love that show. But I thought that our family was just kind of almost like the Cosby show. And I, the Huxtable family. The Huxtable family, right? right? Um, so, yeah, but traveling everywhere um, that we did travel to was just always an adventure. I always saw it as, you know, I get to recreate myself. I get to be a, a brand new person. I get to make new friends. I get to learn from my mistakes. Um, what kind of kid were you? I was very outgoing, very athletic. Um, I I had friends all the time. We we had, you know, uh, all types of make believe uh, scenarios. We'd play church. We'd play teacher. We'd go exploring. That's what I I love to do. I love to go and ride bikes all over the neighborhood. Go to places I knew I shouldn't be at. <laughs> um, we would find odd berries and fruits and and eat them. them. That's not always a good idea. It's (laughs) amazing that I survived childhood. It really is. Um, Go into homes that I should have never gone into. I'd probably freak out if my kids did half the stuff that I did as a child. But So it's amazing that I survived. Um, But I guess just we were – it was kind of – felt like different times than like – no well, one, it was. Yeah. yeah. Like, and everybody was kind of watching your child a little bit, you know, making sure they're not getting into too much trouble. But I had my fair share of tetanus shots and, <laughs> you know, scraped knees and yeah. had no broken bones, but I did fall out of a couple trees and off a few roofs. I was extremely adventurous. So yeah, I was what like you would call a tomboy. Right. Tell me about your, tell me about your mom and dad and their yeah. relationship. What, what, what was that like? They were so in love, um, and they still are. They're the cutest thing, um, different personalities. Um, but 
you know, my parents had seven children. And so I remember, you know, every time I'd see them kiss or, you know, get close to each other, I'd be like, uh-uh, uh-uh, uh-uh. <laughs> No more kids. No more kids. <laughs> <laughs> so that was like the running joke between me and my siblings is don't let them get close together, you know. Um, we would sleep underneath their beds or, you know, and right before everyone went to sleep, we'd hop in the bed with them. You know, they, they were just... Um, now I look back and I'm like, God, you know, you don't really see marriages like that anymore. But, um, my dad instilled some very core principles in us growing up very early, you know, early on, which was, you know, always do the right thing, tell the truth, take responsibility for your actions, um, be of service to someone. And my mom, the same thing, you know, always do your best, um, she would correct us when we're wrong, but she would never correct us in front of other people, which I greatly appreciated. Because uh, as a kid, you'd get in trouble at school and you'd feel like not only is the teacher against you and the principal and your classmates, but your parents are going to get mad at you too. And she would, she made me feel secure and um, she made me feel like she was on my team all the time. She's just that type of woman. and um, But she'd also give her very last to any one of us. And so service and charity, her big thing is charity always begins at home. You have to do it at home first. And so they instill those type of qualities into us. Um, so to watch them together, even though they're completely different people, they share the same values. And it was evident that there was love in my home and that they loved us very much. So, um, yeah. That's a pretty awesome start to life then to yeah. have that in your family. Yeah. You know, as a child, you don't really see it that way, especially when you have other siblings because you think and you're the middle child, you think that other people are the favorite. And so I would as a especially kid, as a middle child. Especially right. as a middle child. But I was a little different. I I look back at that time and I'm like, you had everybody's attention all the time. Like you were you were taking control all the time. Um and so, but I remember at that time in my life, I felt like my younger sister was getting the attention or the twins because they were boys were getting away with everything and the older girls were getting away with everything. And so I didn't really see it the way, you know, your, your child's point of view is just so limited right. <laughs> and, and narrowed. For sure. Yeah. So. So when you moved to Tallahassee, your dad retires to take a job. From, retires from the military to take a job at, at FAMU with ROTC? Well, no. He actually was still in the military when we moved to Tallahassee, okay. and he was um, working at ROTC. And it was part of the last leg of his duty, if you will. Right. Um, but I think that was sometime in 93 or 94 when we moved to um, Tallahassee. And I think right after my sister passed is when he retired, which would have been in 2001. Okay. So you move, you're in middle school, I guess? I'm in middle school. Around that age? So what school did you go to? So it's not around anymore. It was Bellevue Middle School. Bellevue, yeah. And um, that's where I met Maggie Lewis Butler, who was my science teacher at the time. Um, I met Dr. Hassler, who I'm not sure where she went, but she she was a, the principal there at the time. And I think she's since gone on to teach at the university level. But I met so many... Um, um, that's when relationships really started to matter to me. I think before um, moving to Tallahassee, you know, I was always uh, 
so adventurous, always trying to recreate myself. You know, what's the next thing I'm going to do with my friends? I wasn't really um, um, spending time in, in getting to know people. Um, so I think at, at Bellevue is when I start to realize, oh, relationships actually matter. Do you think um, it was age or also because you knew you were probably going to be here for a while? You know, I didn't think I was going to be there for a while. Um, I didn't have any concept of what was next in terms of whether we so were you, moving or not. So this was just another not. move, right? This was just another move. Okay. Um, so to my surprise, you know, I, I stayed here. And of course, as a kid, you know, I... I can't wait to leave here. I can't wait to leave here, you know, is what what I would say. Uh, so you didn't love Tallahassee I right didn't, away? I didn't. I didn't. I didn't. You know, coming from Germany and coming from other places where kids were just like me, they were moving around from one place to the next. Um, I felt like the kids that I was around before moving to Tallahassee had a little bit more of a broader experience that they adapted better to people who were different from them. And when I got to Tallahassee, you know, I, I just, I faced with, you know, with a lot of criticism, um, at the schools that I attended, um, from teachers, from students, students. from my peers. What? So I didn't dress what? like them. Uh, I didn't talk like them. You know, um, do you talk like you talk now? I I think so. <laughs> I mean, I probably sound just a little different, but um, I. Well, you weren't from here. I was. I was. Well, and also, you know, I was, students would say to me, "Oh, you sound like a white girl," and I'm not white. For the listeners, <laughs> <laughs> just, for just, for, just for clarification, in case you haven't seen any of the photos <laughs> leading up to this, right? Right. So um, I would get a lot of that, and I would be—I'd come home upset and crying, like, "Why are they saying that? What does sounding white sound like? And you know, what does sounding black sound like? Or you act like a white girl? Well, what does that mean? Like, and I could not understand, and so that turned into. Um, oh, you have big eyes and your hair. And so it was just a lot of issues. You know, kids can be cruel. Oh, for sure. And when Especially you, in middle school. In middle school. And when you don't know who you are. And had you ever doubted any of those things about yourself before that point? Have you ever thought about it? Um, I think I definitely had some issues with how I looked. Like I, I felt like... Um, I wasn't pretty growing up a little bit. I'll keep in mind, even though I'm I'm a with a whole bunch of kids that are, you know, have similar experiences, I'm still don't look like most of the kids on the bases, especially when we go to summer camp out off the base. And so, you know, pretty much people had long stringy hair and my hair was thick and, you know, a little bit wavy or coarse like and right. um you know, I have big lips and big nose and big eyes, which I absolutely love now. But back then, I'm thinking, God, you know, I if I could be a little bit more if if I didn't have these features, I'd probably be more pretty. Or and, and I had those issues a little bit. Um, and my my sisters and my mom, oh my God, you're crazy, you're beautiful. You know, you you didn't see it. And then I get so I went from feeling not so pretty to. Um, when I came to Bellevue to feeling like, I guess I wasn't black enough, you know, I, I, I didn't get, and, and that was actually, that school was actually a mix of black and white students. It was, I don't think it was predominantly black, but I didn't fit in anywhere is kind of how I felt. You knew early on 
from what I've read, that you wanted to be an attorney. Right. Why in the world as a kid drew you – what drew you to the law? Why did you want to be a lawyer? Claire Huxtable. <laughs> that makes sense. Claire Huxtable. Because she was pretty awesome. She was amazing. Um, so, you know, growing up um, in Germany, we had that one channel that came on at like 7 o'clock at night. And for the whole day, you would see like the color bars. I don't know. I don't think the children know what that is no, these sure days. I'm sure they don't. Yeah. <laughs> but for the longest time, there would be the color bars on the screen and that annoying sound. And this is a test. This is only a test right. would come on across yep. the screen. And then the show would come on. And Rudy Huxtable was my muse. I identified <laughs> with her. I loved her. But, um, you know, people would say, oh, you remind me of Rudy Huxtable. My mom would do my hair and her, her hairstyles. But it was Claire Huxtable that I absolutely adored. I mean, mother of seven. So she kind of reminded me of my mom. At least I thought she had seven kids. She may not actually have seven kids. Um, uh, you know, she kind of favored my mom a little bit. Um, she spoke Spanish. Uh, she's family law attorney, married the successful doctor, right. lived in this beautiful brownstone. I mean, I wanted to recreate my life to look like her. And of course, um, I would occasionally, you know, my my family was would have these get-togethers every weekend where they would throw these parties. And I remember the boom boxes and the cookouts and all their friends. And so, you know, parents, they want show them this thing that you can do, you know, sing this song that you can sing or do this. And so with, with there being so many kids, we would, it was inevitable for us to get into an argument. And so some, one of the friends would always say, oh my God, you should be a lawyer, you know, because you're arguing. (laughs) So that kind of stuck. It was like, oh yeah, maybe I should be a lawyer. So yeah. Because I was going to ask you before, but in a large family, I have six children. So I I understand the dynamics of and it seems like every kid's got a role to play, yes. right? They're the ones who do, the one who looks out for somebody, the one who's a little mischievous. The yes. one, you know, everybody's got their own little role. And it sounds like yours was peacemaker or uh, no, not maybe that. not. Right. I, you know, it's so funny that you would say that because when people would ask, well, which one are you? I would say, well, I'm the smart one. <laughs> <laughs> and that burned some of my siblings right. alive. I just, but that was how I identified myself. Oh, I'm the smart one. Um, God. That probably so went over really well with them. Right? <laughs> <laughs> hey, I still hear about it to this day. Yeah. And I'm like, God, come on. We're, I'm almost 40. Why are we still talking about it? But um, that was what my, I considered my role um, to be was the smart one. But I didn't always want to be an attorney. I, I, I would tell myself, okay, I'm either going to be a lawyer, a doctor, or the president. That's what I was going to be. That's so right. um, in at Bellevue, I got the opportunity to participate in some type of medical program where I witnessed a gallbladder surgery, and that kind of did it for me. That was it. That was it. So now so it's down to two. It's down to two. Lawyer and president. Yep, that was it. So, All right. And then I saw that you also, you even went beyond the lawyer aspiration to know you wanted to go to Georgetown. Right, right. So, so I is have that where Claire went? Did she go to Georgetown? I have no idea where but, Claire So went. why Georgetown? <laughs> um, why Georgetown? The Pelican Brief. Isn't okay. it crazy? Like I'm talking about these shows and right. these movies. But um, I think I was You like the whole DC vibe? The whole DC vibe. Um, Julia Roberts, Denzel Washington, running through the law, law library of Georgetown. Um 
you know, and I remember my mom saying, that's Georgetown. And I'm like, oh, wow, that's amazing. You know, all all my life I said, I'm going to go to Georgetown. I'm going to go there for college. Uh, I was going to go to NYU for law school. Um, I had it all mapped out. Where right. I was, and I was going to be this big time New York attorney is what I was going to do. I have no children and just, you know, live it up in my penthouse. A power broker. Right? Yes. So, I mean, at this point, you've got the romantic versions of being an attorney and movie and TV things. But at some point in school, I imagine you understand that there's, you have to get the grades, you have to work hard. So when did that kind of click in that, you know, if you want to be an attorney, it's going to take some work and you have to kind of put your mind to it. You know, I think it clicked in later in life. Um, So I went from Bellevue to going to Rickards. I went to Rickards because of the IB program. So I was the first class of of IB at Rickards uh, entered in the first class, except I didn't graduate with my IB diploma. And tell me what the IB program was. It, the International Baccalaureate Program is an, um, a, a program that gets high school students prepared for college, but it's really accelerated. Some compare it to advanced placement or AP classes. I was recruited. I don't know how that came about. Um, I have to know how. Kimball Thomas is how it came about. The principal at the time recruited me and um I started that program. I was a cheerleader. I was excelling until I wasn't. And it still didn't dawn on me that you needed to have good grades to get through, to get to college. I mean, to me, it was just like, oh, I'm I'm going to college because I'm going to law school because I'm going to be this big time New York attorney. So, you know, like- The details weren't important. The details weren't important. <laughs> right. um, so I barely graduate from high school. My senior year, um, I- end up dropping out of IB. Uh, the summer of my senior year, excuse me, the summer before I become a freshman in college is when I found out that I'm pregnant with my child, my first child, Kari, um, who's now 20. So <laughs> I uh, st- still didn't dawn on me the type of work that was going to be required of me to get into law school or to become an attorney. And I hadn't at this point even been accepted into um, Georgetown. <laughs> right. um, I hadn't even been accepted into Florida State at this point. Uh, I was at, <clears throat> I had graduated from high school, not the IB program though, and I had gotten accepted into FAMU and I was going into their engineering program. So I had told myself, okay, so I'm going to be an engineer and then I'm going to use my profession as an engineer to fund my law school education. Still not grasping that you need to have the grades and the LSAT scores to go to law school. Um, you should have just told him you were the smart one. And I, that would have been enough, probably. Yeah, not. <laughs> <laughs> nope. Not the least bit. I mean, I think that's when reality started clicking in a little bit. I Well, let me, let me backtrack. Reality started to click when I had the baby. I right. think that's when... And I don't want to skip over that. I mean, we're we're talking about aspirations and job and future, but here you are, a a young woman, 17. I'm 17. And you're now a mom. I am now a mom. Soon to be mom. Soon to be mom, right. So, I mean, what is going through your head there? You're obviously, this probably wasn't the plan. So where, where is your head at at this point? I'm in denial. And keep in mind, I grew up in a very... Um, loving home, but it was still strict. You know, I was, you know, I addressed my dad as yes, sir, no, sir. You know, I addressed my mom as ma 
But, you know, whenever I got in trouble, it was yes, ma'am and no, ma'am. And, you know, I was still living in their home and I thought I was grown and um, didn't understand um, sex or relationships and didn't understand what it meant to be pregnant. So for the whole duration of my pregnancy, I'm in denial. I'm like, I'm going to wake up. What do you mean you didn't understand (laughs) being pregnant? I'm going to a doctor. I am taking my prenatals. I'm going to check You (laughs) understand what's happening. Physically, I I get it. But not the reality of what's really happening. Right. So that in about 40 weeks, you're going to deliver a whole human that has needs that you are going to be responsible for. And um, I could not really grasp that. Um, and I had people around me to help me. Um, Pamela Banks, um, she worked, she works for a Brehan Institute mm-hmm. and she was nurturing me and coaching me and, you know, but I still didn't truly grasp what, what my life was going to truly look like and how difficult things were going to be until I actually had my son. And so um, I, you know, I say, you know, I was in denial, but I really was. I thought that, okay, I'm going to wake up and I'm not going to be pregnant anymore. Or (laughs) I'm going to be back in high school. Silly, naive to think that. But I, my mind wasn't really ready at 17 to understand that you've made an adult decision and you're now going to have to respond like an adult. Um, I was still very much a child and, and doing childish things. Right. You're transitioning to FSU, right? You're right. going to Florida State, and you're working three jobs right. at some point. Right. I knew enough to know that I needed to work. <laughs> so, and I had been working, you know, since I was 14. Um, so, just doing first babysitting jobs in McDonald's. Then there was the Chicago Loop, and I was doing McDonald's in the Chicago Loop, and then McDonald's, Chicago Loop, and a daycare. And so, it kind of carried on with, you know, through college. So. Right as I became a freshman, I'm pregnant with my son. I go into the spring semester. I deliver my son in my freshman year. And um, um, I'm working three jobs. And I'm not doing well in school at all. Yeah, I don't know how you – I mean, any one of those three things is tough by itself, much less trying to do all of them. So so what happened with school? So I – Flunked out of school. I I didn't uh, get kicked out, but I did. I had to withdraw from that semester. I couldn't. um, I could not keep up with the academic rigors, and um, have a child. You know, be a brand new mom, and work the way I was. So that was difficult. Um, I met uh, some counselors. Um, Dr. Beaumont was one of them. And they counseled me through it. I was able to get back into school like the next semester and just really take my time um, with school. So Kari was born in 99. Um, By the fall of 99, I got a little bit of I was at least thinking that I got a little bit of footing. I was coming back into myself and trying to uh, work and go to school and take care of my son. Getting a rhythm to your life. <laughs> trying a little, right? to. But, you know, I'm I'm 18 and I'm still, you know, doing childish things. I'm not very responsible. I'm making some poor decisions financially. I'm making some poor decisions legally. 
you know, I'm faced with having to take care of a child and um, this this new responsibility of, of, of a whole other person, but also being an adult, you know, living away from your family, taking care of bills, you know, like that. It was right. uh, a challenge. So I'm writing bad checks and I'm I'm getting in, in trouble, you know, with Willie Meg's office at the time. He was the state attorney. <laughs> right. So um, not even appreciating what any of that meant, you know. So were you writing bad checks like you thought it was covered or you knew that there wasn't money, but you had to have something? I don't really know what was in my mind at that time. Like I had a job. I knew money was coming. Right. And here are checks. And- here are checks. And it's going to come out my bank account. I think it was really a matter of me not balancing my checkbook. Right. That's a skill they don't teach you in high school. And it's um, not like you could go online and check your balance. Exactly. Right? And it's something we never talked about in my family. We never talked about, you know, money. You know, we, we talked about your spirituality. We talked about, you know, religion. We talked about taking care of one each other. But we never talked about finances. Um, and I didn't learn about finances until I be- I was on my own and I learned the hard way. So I think it was really a matter of that because I worked three jobs. Um, so I was putting money was into money, my bank right? account. But I wasn't being diligent in balancing that. And younger people don't understand the back. If you didn't write that little number in the oh register, God. you'd have no idea how much it was a money chore. you had. Yeah. It was a chore. And I mean, around this time now, you can call your bank. We didn't have so much online banking, but you can call your bank and check the balances. Right. But, you know, you had your you had cards and you had your checking checkbook. But I didn't really use my register the way I should. Um, and I, I'm also in stu- a student, so I'm getting financial aid money as well. So it, it got to a place where some days I was faced with, do I get diapers for my baby or do I keep my lights on? Right. And so those, you know, those type of challenges um, I was facing as a new mom. What happened? What was the result of, of having to deal with that? So back then, if you got a bad check, you got a, a little letter in the mail that said, hey, you have a bad check and this is it's it's a misdemeanor and um, you need to come and do this video and pay the bad check fee. And you have to prove that you paid the vendor back in their check fee. And so I did that maybe four or five times. And um, so that was the extent of the criminal activity. Right. right. So. I didn't go to jail. I didn't, you know, get arrested or, you know, um, fingerprinted for that. Now, I did get arrested, but I didn't get arrested for that. And um, so I didn't think that. Okay, should I ask why you got arrested? Oh, sure. I got arrested for, well, I had a contempt of court charge um, stemming from um, an eviction situation. And um, my little mouth got me in trouble in court. (laughs) <laughs> you got mouthy with the judge. I got, I got a little mouthy. Um, it didn't work out well for me. I got a contempt of court, and I had to pay some fees. I didn't get arrested for that right at the time or nothing like that. It's not like anyone drug me out of court and said, right. oh, my God, nothing like that. Is this that. around the same time frame? This is around the same time frame. Okay. So this is around uh, 2000s, um, late 99s, early 2000s. Um, and so I didn't pay uh, – it was a blue writ warrant. 
that was issued because I didn't pay the last of my probation fees for that charge. And um, I got into an argument at home that resulted in me calling the police and the police taking me to jail. And that's when I got fingerprinted and uh, got the scary mugshot and sat in a holding cell for all of two or three hours. Was that a scared straight kind of moment for you or was it just a a pain? Honestly, that was not rock bottom. That wasn't rock bottom. It was the beginning of rock bottom. Mm. So it wasn't a scared straight. I think shortly after that time period is when my sister died. And she, um, she was driving on Live Oak Plantation Road and it was storming really bad. And it was the day... Um, I'll never forget. It was January 29th and the Super Bowl was coming on that day. And it was early that morning. And she veered off the side of the road, single car accident and hit one of those utility poles on like that live oak and died instantly. And so that was the in the midst of that is when I hit rock bottom in the midst of that. And so all of this was going on, these bad check charges, the contempt of court, the arrest um, is when I taking care of a, you know, soon to be one year old at that time um, is when it, when I, the beginning of me actually hitting rock bottom. So when you say hitting rock bottom, you just mean emotionally or kind of Everything. I mean, what did what, what what did that lead to as far as how you were conducting your life? Was right. it just? Oh wow! I mean, I was surrounded by uh, people that I should not have ever been around. Um, I was doing things that I should have never been ex- doing or exposed to. Um, what what led to that? Do you think? I think a, a culmination of you know this is not how I had planned my life. This is not where I had saw myself going, and yet this is where I am. Like, here you had all this opportunity, and now you have been reduced to a a statistic. You are the very thing that you see on the news that people talk about. Um, And you should In terms of a young person, single mom getting in trouble, that whole thing? Single, uneducated, black girl— you know, mother, um, you know, just the, you know, the statistic. So you were becoming a stereotype. I was becoming the stereotype. And that's never how I saw myself. That's never how anybody saw me, right? Especially my parents. It was very disappointing for me to have my parents witness all that they had poured into me and um, for me to just, you know, not live up to it. Yeah. I mean, I can't at even, that time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I know. And I can't even imagine dealing with, you know, where you are in your life and some of the disappointments, and then right. and then piling on the loss of your sister at right. the same time. That right. that would be overwhelming for anybody. Right. And I and I, especially for my parents, I think that's what it was. Is that there's nothing like the loss of a child, you know. And I, my heart goes out to anybody who's ever had to experience that, and um, and I did too. In the middle of all of that, um, I got pregnant again, and I had a miscarriage. And I had a miscarriage where I delivered the baby. Oh. 
And so that was rock bottom for me. That was, that's when it was like, you've got to get it together, Jamie. You know, you, you have this beautiful light that you have been entrusted with that you now need to take care of and you have to be healthy for him. And you, you had another beautiful light and I, and I blame myself for, for miscarrying that child. I realize now, you know, in retrospect, it it wasn't my fault. These things do happen. But at the time, um, and most moms go through that, is that they, they have that guilt. Like, what could my body not do or something like right. that? But, um, and how old, you, how old were you at this point? So this is 2000. I am 19. Wow. Right. <laughs> and so... It's at that point in time I miscarried that baby November 7th of 2000. I, my sister died January 29th, and I miscarried November 7th. And so it's at that point <clears throat> that I'm like, okay, you've got to get it together. So I withdrew again from school, and the, the following spring, that January of 2001, is when I uh, started pulling it together. Hey, everybody. Just a quick reminder that this episode is brought to you by Fiore Communications. Just like people, every business has a story to tell, and we've been helping our clients tell their story since 2001, because who you are as a company is just as important as what you do. To learn more about how telling your story can make a difference in your business, visit FioriCommunications.com. Thanks again for listening. Now back to the show. I'm now working at the Florida Bar. I'm still working at the daycare. So I don't have three jobs, but I have two jobs. Um, I'm doing better in school and I'm taking it more seriously. Like my 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 grades that first year really suffered a, a great deal. So I'm taking it more seriously. I still don't understand what it takes to be a lawyer at this point still. I know that I'm going to law school. I don't know how I'm going to get there, but... You know, I keep telling myself, you're, you've got to get to law school, so get it together, you know. Um, but you're starting to make decent grades and um, – Better grades, better. better decisions. Right. And so, so – what do you – what do you? I mean, I know you said you hit rock bottom and you decided <clears throat> it's time to get it together. And that right. sounds easy, but that couldn't have been easy. Right. No. It wasn't easy. Um, you know, I, I, I grew up in the church and, you know – I remember those Sundays when we had the beautiful little flowery dresses and the little bloomers underneath with the ruffles on them and the socks and the shiny patent leather shoes. Um, but some t- somewhere between my early childhood and becoming uh, a mom, I stopped going to church as much and I stopped being involved. Um, and when I lost my second baby or when I lost the baby, I um I decided to go back to church like that I needed to understand why that was the question for me why right. why why so I needed to understand that so I was seeking that answer and I said well I've got to get it it's got to be from God I, God has to be able to explain this to me cuz I just don't understand why my life is in this direction I mean you know, again, very narrow focus on, you know, perspective. I wasn't taking any type of responsibility. I'm like, why is this happening to me? Right. That's what 19-year-olds say. <laughs> um, this isn't fair still. But um, so I started going back to church. And I, you know, again, 
and I go back to Pam Banks, she gave me a Bible that she had, and it had all these highlights in it. And I didn't know you could like write in the Bible and, <laughs> and highlight sure you could it. Write in there? Is that okay? <laughs> and it was her own personal Bible, and um, it had all of these amazing, comforting words in there. And little by little, I started, and my mom was encouraging me. I had a very good, strong circle of friends that were encouraging me to just, you know, affirmations, use those as affirmations, build yourself up, pull yourself up. You can do it. You are not who people say you are. You are who God says you are. And you are, you know, wonderfully made. You are beautifully made. You are more than a conqueror, you know, and just just those types of affirmations. You know, there's nothing impossible um, as long as you have him. And I'm taking these passages out of um, it's, you know, the way it's said in the Bible, but this is how I've written them down in my heart. This is how I remember them. So gradually, you know, when you start to continue to recite whatever the affirmations I felt like, those were to me, those personal love notes to me is what I call them then, um, I started to feel better about where I was and where I was headed. I didn't quite know where I was headed, but I started to feel better about getting up every morning and, you know, giving 100% to this little light that I had and doing the very best that I could at my job and the very best that I could at school. Right. So I'm, I'm, I know you've mentioned that faith was kind of part of your family culture, but is this the first time you kind of look to make it your own and personal to you? Yes. That yes. Right. And and I my only regret is that I hadn't did it done it sooner. Right. Um but I think that God will place you in situations or put you in circumstances where your only place that you have to go is up. And so Losing um, that baby was a, and and my sister all in the same year, dealing with all of those financial woes and criminal issues, is was my was my rock bottom. And so I'm already on literally on my back, literally on my knees. And the only where the only place I had to go is was up right. from there. So I said it could it cannot get worse than this. <laughs> it just cannot get worse than this. So you better do better. Right. And you did do better, right? I did. Things started looking up. It did. Absolutely. And Absolutely. So you you're able to um start looking toward graduation from FSU, right? Right. And right. what was your degree in? Political science. Okay. So I was doubled majored in Spanish in, in political science, but then um it had been 6 years. Right. You're not the first person to take six years. So I needed, okay, well, good. Um, So I needed to graduate. So uh, I didn't finish the major in Spanish. I just went ahead and let that be my minor. But I didn't get through college without having another baby. And that's when I had my daughter um, a year before I graduated. Well, two years before I graduated. No, a year. She was born in 2003. So a year before I graduated is when I had her. Okay. And is the father involved with you? Is he part of the unit? No, we, it's, it's so interesting because we actually were on our very first date 
at a movie theater watching the very first X-Men movie when my roommates at the time came into the movie theater to tell me that my sister had passed. So he was there for that. And because he was there for that, I took that as, oh, my God, this has to work. This, you know, I've got to sew into this relationship because um, no matter how unhealthy it is, how unwise it is for us to do this because the night that I was should have been with my sister, I was in the movie theater with him. I just made myself feel so guilty for that. And um, well, I mean, you couldn't have possibly known that. No, we, we but you know, but, we yeah. we try to reason these things. And so I said, you know, I didn't want that to be in vain. And so I I wanted to do the best that I could to make that relationship work. And so I I did try. And I think a few years after, um, you know, after my sister's death, we were not good for each other and, at all. And so we ended up having, um, I found out I was pregnant. Um, at the time we were together and then it became physically abusive. Mm. And um, and so we we end up, separating and um but you moved to orlando right i moved to orlando when i found out i was pregnant with ariel we had moved to miami so he was living in miami and he was working there i had transferred my job from the florida bar to miami to be with him we were living together it got really bad so we moved apart but i'm still you know within walking distance of his apartment and it was just a terrible situation. Um, I thought I was, I knew what I was doing. I thought I was grown. And um, I thought I could, you know, whatever mess I found myself in, I thought I could get myself out of at that point. Um, I had a job. My son was with me. But this was a very, um, not only just a physically abusive relationship, but it was also emotionally abusive. It was for both me and him. Like it's, you know, I definitely don't want to paint that he was like this terrible person or anything like that. We were not healthy for each other. And so um, I end up having our daughter. He did come to the hospital. He, you know, we tried to reconcile the relationship um, maybe three or four years after that. I mean, we we stayed together for a, a long time in this very unhealthy environment. Right. So you end up, but you do end up in Orlando. That's after Miami. Right. So this is now Ariel was born in 2003. So in 2002, I moved to Miami. Um, 2003, I moved back. (laughs) I have my daughter. At this point, I'm working at Florida State University. Um, I left working at the Florida Bar and I'm working for Dr. Patricia Stith and Dr. Linda Mahler. They hired me while I was pregnant, which is so (laughs) crazy. They look back on that now like, did you not know that she was pregnant? Um, but I appreciate those women for giving me a chance. And so I eventually graduated from Florida State in 2004. I then, like I said, still try to work on this relationship with my daughter's father. He uh, he has us move down to Orlando, and I'm working there now at the Department of Community Affairs. And I'm applying for law school. Yeah, not just applying. A hundred times. A hundred times. A hundred times. Well, this wasn't the this this would be, you know, right after graduation from FSU, I was applying, um, and uh, wasn't successful. And then 
in Orlando, I'm applying to. So um, the hurricanes come and go. I end up getting a job uh, with the 18th Judicial Circuit, and the judge there that hires me is the now retired Justice James E.C. Perry. Mm. And so he is the judge in Sanford. He ends up hiring me for their drug court program. And I tell him, you know, I want to go to law school. And at this point, this is my second round of applications, another 100 applications, you know, a lot of money being spent on applications. And he writes me a letter of recommendation. I think he actually calls the dean at that time at the law school. and um, At which law school? Florida A&M University. Okay, which is in Orlando. Which is in Orlando. Right. And, and that I, carries some weight. Yeah, because I get in. <laughs> right. I get in. And I don't just get in. You know, I don't learn about – I don't get the big letter that everybody gets in the mail. Or, you know, I get the phone call that says, hey, um, orientation is n- this coming Monday. Um, you, can you make it? I'm like, well, why would I make it? You know, why would I make it? But, you know, it's FAMU is, was so interesting because the first time I got waitlisted – So the first round of law school applications, um, and keep in mind, I have a terrible LSAT score. Not only is my GPA crap. Okay, LSAT was not great. The, you know, my personal statement wasn't good. My LSAT wasn't good. Um, So on paper, you're not a great candidate. This looks like a disaster. (laughs) (laughs) So they're they're saving you from yourself at this point is what they're thinking. I think they're thinking, right. right. But there's this strong desire of mine to go to law school. Like I'm going because I have to be this lawyer because I have to help people. I have to help people. That's what I'm called to do. So the next year I get the phone call and I go to orientation. So you're excited about that, right? I'm ex- I am just so thankful at this point. I'm just like, I cannot believe this is happening. Like I'm actually in law school. Now at the time, FAMU was provisionally accredited. They were they had not received their full accreditation. So it was it was relatively new. It was right? relatively new again. Well, FAMU has actually had the very first law school in Tallahassee. Right. Um but when FSU law opened up theirs, FAMU's was made to close down. Right. So years later, you know, they open it up and I'm excited to be um you know, enrolled and going through this program. And I worked my butt off. I worked my butt off. I had to prove myself. I didn't know where the school accreditation was going to go. And I um, was away from home and I had these two kids in this unhealthy relationship. Um, I had support, though, in Orlando. Um, Ariel's grandparents were extremely supportive and and still is to this day. so her father's parents. Her yes, right. her okay. her father's parents, where they took my son in. They treated him like they, it, you know, he was his own. Um, but it's it's you know I still wanted to be close to my family, um, and so I wanted to go back to Florida State. You know, I wanted to come home, and um, so I worked my butt off, and I then a- applied to Florida State and. I didn't get that letter to, to the, the the big letter in the mail that says, hey, you know, you've been accepted in FSU law. Right. I got a call from Sharon Booker, who was um, a dean or in admissions at FSU law. And she is the one who she called me on a Friday afternoon right after I got off from work at 
the 18th Judicial Circuit with Justice Perry. And she was like, yeah, well, we have orientation on Monday. Would you, if you can, can you be up here and can you can you start law school at FSU? I'm like, of course. So, <laughs> so why do you think you didn't get the traditional <laughs> notification? Um, persistence, tenacity. I kept calling and kept calling and you know, what I've learned in this journey is that there are there's only two commodities in this world, and that is time and relationships. Hmm. You know, a lot of people think it's money, but the best resources are time and relationships. With those things, I think you can get anywhere where you're supposed to be. You know, you can get where you're supposed to be. And I think I kept calling and I kept, you know, hey, this is my story. I really want to go to FSU Law. <laughs> I did eventually get the letter, but um, I got that. So phone you dropped call. everything. Yeah, I gave them my up. two. I gave them my notice, like, hey, I I can't even right. give you a two weeks. I hope you understand. Right. And um, yeah, I dropped everything and and moved back home. So. After all the things we've been talking about, all the twists and turns of your life, right. you are now sitting as a student at FSU Law School. Right. And having that, an amazing time. That has to feel pretty good. Very good. Very good. Um, and I'm meeting people like Attorney Benjamin Crump, Attorney Daryl Parks. I'm working for John Marks, who was the mayor at the time. Um, Alan Williams was his aide at the time. Um, I'm working for the Public Service Commission. I, you know, I'm... I'm surrounded by leaders and authority, and um, it was a really exhilarating time. I met my best friends in law school um, at, at FSU Law, so and I'm learning a lot. I'm involved in the National Black Law Students Association. I'm setting up retreats for students to go to and learn about other professions and other law schools, uh, FSU Law. Um, and I give credit to Dean Benavidez for this, but they they funded a trip where we set up a retreat in San Juan, Puerto Rico. And it was just, I just felt so empowered and so emboldened there. And I it was just endless opportunities. It felt like I was where I, I felt like the way my life was going at that point was, was the way it should be going. I felt like everything that I had went through leading up to this point was supposed to be that way, you know? So right. all those dips and valleys that I went through, that was supposed to be that way because I was supposed to get, yeah. use that as a, a vehicle to get me to where I was at that point. So I was feeling good about life. I was feeling like, huh, I'm going to be a lawyer. I'm finally going <laughs> to get there. I'm about to be a lawyer. Right. And then, so you still, your dream is still to go to Georgetown, right? right to get your master's. <laughs> right. Well, no, my, my dream is still to go to Georgetown because I didn't, didn't work out when I graduated from high school, didn't work out in law school. Um, at some point in this journey, I figured out that I wanted to be a tax lawyer, not knowing exactly what that meant, right. but I wanted to be a tax lawyer. While at FAMU, I met the very first tax lawyer in my life, and her name was Professor Joan Bullock. And now she's a dean at, in Texas. But um, she was the very first tax lawyer. Still didn't know what they did, but at Florida State, I had a professor named Brian Galley, and Brian... Um, 
kind of gave me an inside look as to what maybe a tax lawyer did. Um, and he graduated from Georgetown. And it's that relationship, um, that relationship developed. He wrote me a letter of recommendation. And so right before I graduated, I got that nice big envelope. Finally got the envelope first. (laughs) (laughs) Not a phone call that said, you know, congratulations. And so I was going to D.C. I was going to go try to find that brownstone and um, getting closer to Claire (laughs) every day. Right. So but before you get to Georgetown, there's another twist. There's another twist. So what happens next? So, you know, my past catches up with me with the Florida Bar. So in order to be a Florida attorney, you not only have to go to law school and pass the Florida Bar, the exam, but you also have to pass their character and fitness, which means that you have to show that you have the character to be a Florida attorney. And with my criminal history and my financial history, um, I didn't fit the bill. But not only that, I lacked in my application, candor to them. So I... Did you think about it? I mean, did you think about whether you should put it on on the application or not? Well, I... I and then let me try to think about what it is that I didn't do. So I, I didn't think that the bad check charges were criminal charges. Again, remember, the way I saw it was I went to go watch a video. Right. I paid a check fee and I show them that I paid the vendor and not, that doesn't was it. sound criminal. Doesn't sound criminal. Now the con- the the blue writ for stemming from the contempt of court or or um, not paying that those court fees, that I did report, but the um the bad checks, not necessarily because I didn't know enough to know that they were and so it taught me a lesson. You need to definitely be diligent because they tell you you need to pull your whole criminal history. Well, I'm like, I don't need to pull my whole criminal I know my criminal history, except that I didn't. Hmm. And so those were misdemeanors. And so when you don't put everything on your bar application, when you don't, you know, sh- just err on the side of caution and just like divulge everything, then you leave yourself open for the assumption that you are not being candid. And if that's worse than anything to the Florida bar is, you know, it's not so much drug charges or criminal charges or bad check charges or not being able to balance your checkbook or having all this type of debt on your credit report. It's the lack of candor. And so that coupled with all that other stuff that I had um, didn't make me uh, qualify to immediately be a Florida attorney. So I had a hearing. And they um, they made some findings against me. And it was a really trying time because I had gone through all that I had gone through, had graduated from law school finally, was in Georgetown Law pursuing a master's of law in taxation. And I was being told by the Florida Bar, you don't have the requisite character to practice with us. And again, it was like, I'm not good enough. Right. I'm not... I, to go you know, through all this right. and then be told, no, we're not going to let you in. Right, right. And so um, it was uh, it was a very challenging time. But I had I had um, a reference point. I had been through some things before, and I knew that I needed to fall on my knees and I needed to reaffirm myself. 
and I needed to repeat those promises back to me. You know, I'm more than a conqueror with God. Nothing's impossible. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Um, you know, for I know the plans that I have for you, plans to prosper you, not to harm you. Like, I just had to keep repeating those things. And I, so I'm, I'm at Georgetown. I finished strong at Georgetown. I am working with a special trial judge at the United States Tax Court. Um, President Obama had just been elected. It's an exhilarating time in D.C. It's vibrant. It's wonderful. The economy sinks. It just falls through. It's just done. Right. So people are not offering jobs. I end up coming back to Tallahassee. Um, so your goal was to stay in D.C.? Oh, yes. I wanted to stay there. You know, I had I uh, I had some opportunities at IRS had interviewed me. The Department of Justice had interviewed me. I was working at the tax court. You know, this dream of mine of being this, you know, profound, well-renowned tax attorney was, you know, I could see it. It was it was there. But I'm in the Capitol at a, at a very exhilarating time in our history, our country's history. Um, we've elected the first black man. And, you know, and that's why I didn't become the president, right? Because someone told yes. me that I couldn't be because <laughs> they would never hire a woman or they would never elect a woman, rather, right. and especially not a black woman. But here we are. We got a black male president. So it feels like you're in the right place at the right time. Yeah. 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 And then... And then the economy sinks. And so my lease ends, my job ends, I'm moving back home. And I'm moving back into my parents' home. And my two kids are with me. And um, I remember driving from D.C. to Tallahassee. And I'm fumbling around in my car looking for something. I couldn't figure out what it was. But I came came across um, Legal Services of North Florida's uh, business card, Mary Deacle business card. I'm Mary her husband was my economics professor in IB at Rickards. And so I remember meeting her and I called her and I said, hey, Mary, um, I left a message and I was like, this is Jamie Coleman, um, you know, your husband's student from Rickards a long time ago. We met. I am, you know, just graduated from Georgetown and I'd like to see if I can volunteer in the low income taxpayer clinic. And, you know, I left her a message and I missed her call and she had left me a message on the trip down saying, yeah, we, you know, we'll try to set something up. And I got a call from Chris Knapp, um, who's she, we just lost her last year. Um, beautiful person. I thank God for her. She and Scott Mannion gave me an opportunity to volunteer and then eventually hired me. And that's how I started my tax lawyer journey, really. I mean, I was working at the tax court before and I was helping judges draft opinions, but now I'm advocating on behalf of taxpayers and I'm getting that experience through legal services in North Florida. Right. So where's your status? What's your status with the bar at this point? I'm not licensed. I'm still going through it with the Florida bar. Um, and that was but like I'm, a three-year process? It was. It was. So this is in 2009. I didn't get licensed until 2011. Um, and so from 2008 to 2011, even though I had graduated from law school, even though I had passed the bar and I'd even taken New York bar, so the, the exam for New York and had passed that as well, I still wasn't a licensed attorney in Florida um, until April 15th of 2011 is when I finally got sworn in. 
but yeah, it was it was a journey. I had to show rehabilitation and legal services kind of helped me with that because not only did they write me letter of recommendations, but because I volunteered there and eventually got hired, I was able to show the bar my commitment to helping citizens in the state of Florida. I was also volunteering at my baby's school and doing all other types of service projects and keeping my credit better and, you know, managing my checkbook and, you know, really just trying to show them <laughs> that like I have the character. like a parole board or something like, it like saying I'm a, I'm a different person now. I understand my mistake and now, right. I, you know, this is who I am now. That's exactly what it was. It's called rehabilitation. And they wanted you to show that and prove that in order to get there. And I, and I had some people to help me that, with that. Jack Weiss, Richard Greenberg, Chuck Hobbs. These are all relationships, you know, resources that helped me to get there. And I know you had to jump through those hoops, but did you think you gained anything from that process? Was that a good process for you? It, I, I won't say that it was good. It certainly didn't feel good. It didn't feel good. Um, but I look back on it and I say that it was necessary. I will never take my license for granted. I will never um, take the the trust in the that that has been given to me to help citizens of Florida um, for granted. Like I hold that in high esteem. And because I've gone through so much to get that license, I'm not going to do anything to jeopardize it. So I think it was necessary. I don't think I, – I feel like all of these experiences have just ordered they, – they've been ordered steps. They've been a part of my journey because they were essential to – where I am now. So how did I get there? <laughs> how did I get here? Um, wherever here is at this present moment because of those right. things, those, you know, and I, I struggle to say adversity. I, I now see them as opportunities. Um, but that's how it's because I went through those opportunities. I experienced them it, it was necessary for me to do that in order to get to where I am present day. Sure. Okay. So now you're not only a practicing attorney in Tallahassee, you're a right. partner in your own firm. So right. tell me about that. <laughs> so while working at Legal Services, that's how I met my partner, Robert Williams. And um, we hit it off instantly. We both had the Georgetown Law LLM and... Um, we had both went to Florida State at some point. We had those things in common. And, you know, if you ever see Robert and I, we look like complete polar opposites. <laughs> but we are the exact same person. <laughs> we are the, the exact same person. So um, we hit it off. And I was working there part-time, working at another law firm part-time, and working at legal services. And eventually, I decided to just kind of focus my attention at Vieira Williams at the time is what the firm was called. And um, so I left legal services and I left um, the other law firm and I just was work, working there full time. And then sometime in 2017, we changed the name of the firm to what is now Williams and Coleman. So, so, but it was still a surreal feeling when it happened. It was just like, goodness gracious, is, is, that's my daddy's that, name. That's my, that's right. my dad's name right there. That's right. my name. In a very prominent place on West Tennessee. Yes. So yes. 
A lot of people see that sign. Yeah. Apparently 8,000 people drive by it a day. So, yeah. That's a lot. (laughs) That's a lot. Okay. So I'm going to go out on a limb here and guess that the majority of tax attorneys in the U.S. are not African-American women. You're right. So um, (laughs) how does who you are allow you to um, serve people who may who may not ordinarily, who may be intimidated by the process or who can relate to your experience a little more. And, you know, how does that make you unique in, in this niche of, of being an attorney? Right. I think, you know, I think I bring a little bit of a different, um, a different perspective. Um, I, and I think people can relate to that. I, you know, I don't come off um, as pretentious. I don't think, anyways. <laughs> Tell me if I'm wrong, Dave. Mm. But <laughs> I've never seen it. <laughs> but um, I think I come off as relatable, and I think that my life experiences, um, I bring that with me with every consult, with every client relationship. Um, and so I'm not judgmental in that way, and I really do have a heart. For helping people. That's why I wanted to become an attorney. Yeah, Claire Huxtable encouraged me, influenced me. She she made it look glamorous. But the heart of it was those values that my parents instilled in me, which was service and charity and love. And so that's really why I wanted to become an attorney. And so a tax attorney. Um, yeah, why? I mean, a, I know you right. mentioned it, but there's so many areas of practice areas in the law. Right. Tax. Tax is a, a unique one. It is. And to me, it's the the sexiest part of the law. It is. There's just <laughs> I think so you, much. <laughs> you may not be in the majority on that, but but I think what it was for me is um going when I was in college, you know, I'm working these three jobs, I'm uneducated, I'm single mom, and I go to file my tax return on my own for the first time, and I get back this huge sum of money, almost half of my earnings for that year. And it was because of the earned income tax credit. And for the life of me, I just couldn't understand how you could get that kind of a refund just by being a single mom. And that kind of piqued my interest. And from there, I took a constitutional law class in college. And that's when the thought of, I'm going to be a tax attorney. Well, my parents had also experienced some issues with the IRS. And they felt like they didn't know anybody to help them. You know, they they went, they do what a lot of taxpayers do. They go directly to the IRS to seek guidance. And at the time, the IRS um, didn't really... Um, you know, explain what your rights were as a taxpayer. Now they do a really good job of giving taxpayers information about what their rights are. I wanted to be the difference. I wanted to, for people who looked like me, to know that there were people that looked like them that knew tax law and that was available to them. That was so important to me. And so- Have people responded that way as like you expected them to? Oh, I mean, yeah. Are they comforted by that and and it's a little less intimidating than it may otherwise be? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I get that a lot. I get mixed reactions. I get the, you're a lawyer? (laughs) I I think the surprise would not be on the lawyer, but the the tax lawyer part. I I get that too. I get the, oh, you know, you look too young to be a lawyer. How long have you been practicing? I get that sometimes. (laughs) But then I also get, I'm so thankful that I met you because – and that you do this type of law. Um, 
Right. But yeah, I get mixed emotions about it. And but overwhelmingly, people are comforted by that. You know, when they walk into my office or they they read my bio, they go onto the website and they they read my a little bit about who I am and some of my accolades. Okay, she may know what she's talking about. Yeah. So, well, speaking of accolades, that's you've won more awards than we could list in our mm. time here. But I mean, just incredible. You know, being 2017, the distinguished long young lawyer from the Tallahassee Bar, among right. a lot of other things. Right. I mean, how do, how does it make you feel when you think about you receiving awards, being named to lists of right. outstanding attorneys from some of the same people that you had to prove your character right. to not that many years ago? Right. Um, so it's, I was in the kitchen a few years back, and I was talking to my dad. I was like, Daddy, did you see the magazine from Tallahassee Women's Magazine? Did you see it? And he was like, yeah, I saw it. And I was like, well, aren't you proud of me? And he was like, baby, I've always been proud of you. You know, you, these people are just seeing what you are. I've known this about you your whole life. And he was like, you need to stop treating your successes um, you need to start treating your successes like your failures. Just be indifferent to them. They don't make you. In that moment, I realized, yeah, I need to do that. And so I've been working really hard. So your, your question is, how does that make me feel? I'm very blessed and I'm very encouraged by um, people recognizing um, my story, um, uh, recognizing me or or. or accolades or this perceived success. Um, but at the same time, I feel like this has always been the makings of me. This has always been me. And I'm no different from anyone else. We all have a story to share. We all have those opportunities we had to overcome. So while I'm very encouraged and I appreciate the uh, recognition, um, there's so much more to do to do. There's so much work to be done. I don't feel like I have arrived, sure. right? And I don't feel like I can rest on those laurels. So Right. Well, I know you're still committed to all the um, you know, legal services, North Florida Legal Aid Foundation, FSU Veterans Clinic, you know, your heart for providing legal services to those who may not always have access to great, you know, legal counsel. Right. Um why is that still such a big part of your life? Because it's those values that my parents instilled in me, service and charity. And um, and I. this is how I show love. This is how I um, show my gratitude to the community that I love. And so it's by giving back in that way. I think that we all have a special gift. Um, you know, my son I don't know if he got this from Dr. Akbar or whomever, but he has this personal philosophy in life. And so I remember him asking me, well, mom, what's your personal philosophy? And um, in just thinking about that, you know, I thought, well, mine is that we are all here to connect with one another. It's no coincidence, Dave, that you and I met a long time back, right. you know, and, and it's no coincidence that we sit here today in front of each other, we all have a special gift that is tied to someone's need. And so if we can recognize that, 
then we see that we're all interconnected in some way. And so I have a gift that could be, you know, used for someone's need. And likewise, I have a need that could be benefited by someone else's gift. And so that's what keeps me going is I want to I want to make sure that I touch as many people as I can before I leave this earth, that I show my children that that's what's important in life is that you you be of service to each other because you're not on an island by yourself. You're not here by happenstance. You're not you're not alone. And so you're you're very much tied to that person that just walked past you. So figure out how you are and how you could be of service to them. And so that's why I try my best to do legal services um, and any type of services. You know, I, I sit on non-legal boards, too. So <laughs> I right. try to I try to be um, of service in any way that I can be um, because I feel I do feel like that's our, our calling or at least that's mine. So I want to touch on one area that we haven't quite completed yet, and that is that you have a new addition to your family. So uh, tell me about your son. Eden is a year now. He is a light in my life. He's absolutely gorgeous. I could have never imagined having um, this beautiful person. You know, my other kids are probably going to be upset with me because they were also beautiful. (laughs) Of course. And are beautiful. Um, But eating is a blessing. Uh, that I didn't expect to receive. Um, Being a single and a teenage mother, um, a lot of shame came with that from other people. I I, I was made to feel bad for being pregnant. You know, it was taboo, especially when you're not married. Um, I remember going to a church and I was clearly very young and I was pregnant and I remember the pastor calling me up and telling me I needed to repent for my sins because I was pregnant with my son and I felt so terrible. I felt like, you know, it it was an an embarrassment to my family is what I thought. It was an embarrassment um, to me. What did you think he was calling you up for? Did you... I know. And he, I, he was calling me up because I was clearly pregnant. I was right. probably seven or eight months pregnant, and I was a little bitty thing. So there was no hiding that. Um, right. um, but I had never been to this church before. I had was just visiting this church, and um, uh. this uh, – yeah, he called me up, and he he laid hands on me and, and told me I'm a sinner, and, and I needed to repent. Wow. and. I mean, I could look back at that and see it a lot of different ways now, but as um, a teenager at that time and a, you know, very self-aware and conscious about my current condition, being pregnant, I felt like at that time he was saying that because I was pregnant. And, um, you know, so it, it, it had the, the, the connotation of being young, uneducated, you know, single mother didn't have, um, I didn't wear that as a badge of honor then. And even when I um, was pregnant with my second child, although her father and I were together, it wasn't a healthy relationship, I was still unmarried. And so it didn't come with, um, again, I didn't feel like when I told people I was pregnant, the Oh my God! Congratulations! I didn't get you didn't that. Get any of that. <laughs> I didn't yeah. get that. So there was a, a level of guilt there, a little, a little shame there. And, and then later on, as I became older, 
um, and wanting to be ingrained in my career and be successful, the idea of having a child, um, having to um, ask for time off with my employer, those little things just worried me. Not being in relationship um, with certain people, you know, I just ran from the idea and I aborted the opportunity to be a mother um, despite having already had two children. Mm. And um, it that came with shame and guilt. So on top of the shame that I'm feeling, I'm also feeling the guilt of those decisions that I made to not have children um, when blessed with the opportunity. And so as I continue to get older, and now I'm 37, um, you know, I'm on, I've, I'm named partner with my firm. I've, I'm on the cover of this local, you know, magazine, the Tallahassee Woman magazine. And so the, the appearance is that I've reached some modicum of success, whatever right. that means. And I'm still, I, I'm still battling internally with some decisions that I've made and uh, not, not feeling that I have reached where I want to get, right? Um, the, the, the best possible version of myself. I make another, what I don't, what I consider a not so good decision, but probably with the best result. And I find out I'm pregnant with Eden and Eden is truly a new beginning. And leading up to Eden and um, and now that I have him, I realize the greatest gift that I've ever been given are my children. And that's the most important role in my life is are those kids. And right. so um, Kari is, he's taught me a lot about Growing up, you know, he taught me, he grew me up. <laughs> um, he's 20 now. He's a student at UCF and he's, um, a, he will be a doctor. He's wow. going to go to medical school and um, very proud of that young man. Uh, Ariel, she is magic personified. I say that all the time. You know, she walks into a room and she literally lights it up. She's got a personality and a smile that comes from the heavens. And I just, you know, I want to just continue to support them in whatever they want to do. Um, and now all that shame and guilt that I once had is just nothing but honor and gratitude. And now when people say single mother to me, you know, there is no shame or guilt in it. It is a badge of honor to me. Um, one, because of the title mother, and then also two, single being that I'm not married yet. I'm definitely not alone in my journey. I've got amazing support system, and I always have. Looking back, what would you say is the one thing or person that really changed the trajectory of your life to get you to where you are today? Oh, wow. Feeling the effects of losing my sister probably changed the trajectory of my life. I think at that point in time, I realized that life is fragile and it's certainly a gift and time is not necessarily abundant. You know, she passed at 17 years old, which, you know, didn't seem fair to me at all and was you know, caught me completely off guard that someone so young could pop, could 
could pass, could die. When I was finally able to come out of the haze of she's not here and, and, and really try to start dealing with that is when I probably woke up and said, okay, you've got to pull it together because you have um, some, some people you got to take care of, you included. So the name of the podcast is How I Got Here. Yeah. So where do you think here is going to be for you three to five years from now? Mm, That is such a great question. What I hope here looks like in three to five years is that I have evolved into the best version of Jamie, whatever that looks like, that that I'm still learning, that I'm still growing. Um, Here is not... um, a place where there's some monetary, you know, expectation or some level of recognition. It's here for me in three to five years is being comfortable in that wherever here is in that present moment, that I am the best Jamie that I can be, that I'm not making the same mistakes that I have made, or that if I'm making mistakes, they're new ones, and I'm learning from them. So I'm a work in progress. I say that all the time because I don't want people to think that um, I believe that I've I've made it or that I've, I've reached some level of success um, that's not attainable or that if it is, you have to go through so much to get it. Um, I'm still working and evolving Jamie, and I want... I want her to be, I'm in a good place right now, but I want her to be her best self in three to five years. That's where here should be for me. That's where it will be. That was Jamie Coleman. She is grateful that her experiences have prepared her for a unique role in the community as she continues to seek out new ways to serve. And I'm personally encouraged by the fact that she finds her identity in her faith and her family, and not in her accomplishments. A good reminder for all of us. But if you find yourself in need of tax or estate assistance, she's more than qualified. Thanks for listening to the show. You can subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, please leave us a review. It really does make a difference. Thanks to my amazing staff at Fiori Communications who pick up the slack while I'm working on these podcasts and to Troy Bloom for composing our theme music. You can hear more of Troy's creations on Facebook and Instagram at Troy Bloom Music. To connect with the podcast or suggest a future guest, follow us on social media or email us at podcast at fioricommunications.com.